pray with me and we'll jump in. God, we believe that you have spoken, Lord, that you have spoken through your word. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would help us to listen to your word, to believe in your word, and to obey your word today. God, would you give us wisdom and discernment, Lord, to know how to allow what we know to be true in the future to impact how we live today in the present. So, God, would you guide us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we are on uh, week three on a series on eschatology, which is the study of uh, the last days, study of the end times. And uh, we've been looking at these four uh, popular views on eschatology. Uh, And we kind of spent time last week describing these, kind of explaining them. Uh, Those four views are all millennialism, post-millennialism, historic uh, pre-millennialism, and dispensational pre-millennialism. And uh, we spent a long time last week just kind of uh, unpacking some of the strengths related to uh, the premillennial view. And so today, uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to kind of explain some weaknesses to all four of those views, uh, and then also look at more of the post-mill and all-mill position today, and then close with uh, some application. Okay, so uh, just a by way of reminder, each of these four views differentiate themselves from one another, uh, largely based on how they understand the relationship between the millennium, which is the thousand-year reign of Jesus, and the, the coming of Jesus, his second return. So what does that relationship look like? And each of these four views have a different understanding. And what makes this, I think, so challenging is that these views are largely based on one passage in one chapter in one book of the Bible that just so happens to be the most controversial book in the Bible, which is the book of Revelation and the passage that was read for us just a minute ago by, uh, by Brad. And from that passage, we looked at this last week, there are so many questions uh, that come to the surface related to Revelation chapter 20. Some of those questions that, uh, that we've been looking at uh, is that are the thousand-year reign of Jesus, are they literal or are they symbolic? When does Jesus return? Does he come before the millennium, before the thousand years, or after? Could we be living in the thousand-year reign uh, right now? So the thousand years more symbolic. What's supposed to happen during those thousand years, during uh, the millennium? And even outside of the millennium, there are other questions that these views seek to, uh, to answer like, what does the resurrection look like? Uh, what, what do our bodily, uh, glorified bodies look like? And when do we receive those? What about the last judgment and, and the new heavens and, and the new earth, right? There are all kinds of issues surrounded to the end times that each of these views really provide a framework in order to answer uh, those questions. Now, as we dive in today, one of my main points is not to frustrate you. I don't want you to feel like the Price is Right contestant where you're overwhelmed and you're discouraged. But one of my main points this morning is to show you that each of these views have challenges. Each of these views uh, have a a set of weaknesses or holes in their argument. And, And I say that, again, not to discourage you, but I say that because I wanna challenge you with three things this morning before we dive in. The first challenge is I want you to seek to hold to a particular view about the end times. Maybe not as you walk out of here today, but I want you to, to kind of go down a path 
uh, based on today, based on last week, of trying to wrestle with the scriptures about what the end times are all about. I wanna challenge you to deepen your understanding of the scriptures. That I, I wonder if, if you were really honest this morning, if you have just been kind of ignoring this important doctrine on eschatology because it's too confusing or too overwhelming. I want to challenge you to dive into it and to hold to a particular view. That while on one hand, eschatology is not a primary or even a secondary doctrine, it is nonetheless very important. We're talking about forever and ever, right? So it's important for you, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, knowing that over a fourth of the Bible informs our eschatology, that you must hold a particular view. Tapping out because this is too confusing or it's too overwhelming or you don't understand how it impacts how you live today in the, in the present might reveal just a deep misunderstanding that you have about eschatology. So I wanna challenge you to have a particular view. Secondly, here's my second challenge, is I want you to hold to a view that is most convincing biblically. Okay, I know that that's just like, oh yeah, of course, pastor. But look, sometimes we can have views within our theology just because it's most familiar to us or because we just kind of grew up with that particular view or it's because our parents had that view or, or whatever. I wanna challenge you today to select a view that is most convincing biblically. All right, and we're gonna unpack that more this morning. And then thirdly, um, I wanna challenge you to be charitable and to be humble. Like I said, each of these views, I think, have challenges. You may disagree with other people in this room. You may disagree with me this morning. And look, that's fine. Like, this is not a doctrine. This is not an issue where you need to separate your fellowship over or, or, or your church attendance, right? This issue, this doctrine is important. But look, as long as you're using the Bible as your foundation, I want to encourage you to be gracious and to be humble, be charitable with other people, Okay. All right, let's dive in today. I'm going to uh, just briefly kind of recap uh, what we talked about last week. The first view is the pre-millennialism view. And remember, there are kind of two major categories within this. There are more, but two, I think, major ones, which is historic and dispensational. Okay, dispensational, we looked at this timeline, and if you want these timelines, this was in the e-news this last week under the, uh, the sermon uh, section there. But just by way of reminder, premillennial uh, uh, view holds that Jesus will return physically and literally before the millennium, before the thousand-year reign of Jesus. Now, you can still be a premillennial and not hold to an exact thousand-year period, even though the majority of them do. Uh, you can still hold that it's a, a long period of time. But nonetheless, a premillennial believes that Jesus will return before the millennium. Now, within here, again, there's historic and dispensational. Historic uh, premillennials believe that the church, that Christians, will actually go through the tribulation. Okay, that seven-year period of, of intense suffering and, and horrific events, that uh, Christians will go through that. Okay, also, historic premillennial, they're called that because historically, uh, this has been the dominant view throughout church history. This was the first view uh, on the end times. Now, dispensational uh, premillennials, they, they distinguish themselves from historic because they believe uh, that there will be th this type of rapture that will happen before uh, the tribulation. So God's people will not endure that period of time. You can also see on this timeline the prominent role of Israel. This is a, a key aspect of dispensational theology. 
They believe that there is a, a set of promises that will be fulfilled to the Jewish people uh, during the millennium. Okay, so a very prominent role of ethnic Israel. All right, and last week I, I kind of outlined um, several strengths within this view. Uh, and so if, if you missed last week, you can go back and, and review that. But what I want to do is just kind of show um, a set of challenges with the pre-millennial view. And I, just as a caveat, each of these challenges, even outside of pre-mill, if we looked at post-mill and post-mill, uh, post-mill and all-mill, each view has a set of uh, responses to these questions or, or to these issues, okay? So I don't want to make a, a straw man out of any of these arguments. But here are some challenges that I think the pre-millennial view has in particular. First of all, the Bible doesn't seem to separate the timing of some of these key eschatological events, and yet the pre-millennial view um, seeks to separate them out. And some of those key events uh, is related to the final resurrection, the final judgment, victory over death, even natural creation being freed from the bondage or the curse of sin, the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth are kind of separated out from Jesus's second coming. And when you look at those passages of scripture there, and you can look at those maybe later today or later this week, it doesn't seem to separate them uh, in the way that the pre-mill view wants them to. The problem with some of these events, according to the pre-mill, uh, the problem with some of these events happening after the thousand-year reign of Christ in the millennium is that the Bible doesn't seem to support that. Um, I'll just pick one passage of scripture to look at, like 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13 here, seems to suggest that a lot of these events happen at the second coming uh, of Jesus. If you notice in verses 10 and 12, Peter references the day of the Lord, also known as the second coming of Jesus, at that time the heavens will be destroyed. And according to verse 10, Jesus' second coming will usher in the judgment and the new heavens, and the new earth. If you notice in this passage, the day of the Lord, the second coming, is the time literally when the heavens will pass away. This all happens when Jesus comes, not a thousand years after he comes, after the millennium. And so for Peter here, it seems like there's no option for the millennium to occur between Jesus' second coming and the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, he clearly states that the, the present heavens and the present earth will be judged at Christ's return, at which time the new heavens and the new earth, not the millennium, but the new heavens and the earth will be the eternal dwelling of God's people. Okay, remember the, the pre-millennial view places the creation of the new heavens and new earth after the millennium. Revelation 21, 22 is their interpretation. However, according to this passage, if the new heavens and new earth come with Christ, as Peter seems to indicate here, then the millennium must in some sense be identified with this present age and not in some future period subsequent to Christ's return. Okay, so that's a significant challenge I think that the premillennial view holds. Here's the second one though. I think that they have a difficult time reconciling the, the death that occurs throughout the millennium, throughout that 1,000-year period, and yet the promise in 1 Corinthians 15 that death will be no more when Jesus returns. Okay, the, the pre-millennial view, I think, has a very difficult time explaining what happens during the 1,000-year reign of Jesus, where you have some who are glorified in their glorified bodies and some who are in their unglorified bodies where you have births that are happening and deaths that are happening and, and how that all unfolds. 
Because when you look at the end of Revelation 19, which again, premillennial view holds to a literal chronological interpretation of Revelation 19 and 20. But at the end of 19, which comes right before the millennium, according to the premillennials, when Jesus returns, he destroys all of his enemies, including the armies of the earth. But then when you get to Revelation 20 in verses 7 through 10, there are these rebellious, unbelieving nations who launch an attack against Jesus, against God's people at the end of the millennial age. So who launches that attack? Who are these people? Well, they must be the unbelieving offspring of those believers who entered the millennial age, but with unglorified bodies who are subjected to death at some point. Even a premillennial believes that the believing offspring during the millennium are subjected to death during that period of time. Now, the problem with that is that it seems to go against 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 50 through 57. We'll look at this passage in detail in two weeks. But if you look at these verses, in, in verses 54 and 55, the end of death is when Jesus returns, not after uh, the millennial reign. And so I think they have a hard time kind of reconciling when the death of death actually happens according to this passage, when the trumpet sounds and, and the twinkling of eye and Jesus actually returns. Okay, the, the third challenge uh, here uh, for a premillennial view is that the Bible is silent toward promises specifically fulfilled for Israel in the millennium. Okay, I'm going to obviously reveal my reformed theology here this morning. Uh, I am not a dispensationalist. I, am a, I hold to a reformed theology. And so it does impact the way that you view the role of Israel and the role of the church. But it seems to me that promises specially fulfilled for the Jews in the millennium, it's not even mentioned in Revelation chapter 20 which is the go-to and foundational text for a pre-millennial. That, that's, that's quite interesting. And, and furthermore, I think this idea of special promises to the Jewish people during the millennium is not found in the rest of the New Testament. And so I love my dispensationalist friends. Some of you I know are that. But uh, I, I, I tend to believe that dispensationalists read their interpretation of Old Testament prophecies into Revelation 20, which I think is problematic when you look at the New Testament, the Jews and the Gentiles are equal members of the people of God, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3. And so I think the notion of Jews having a special place in the millennium contradicts the New Testament, which clearly teaches that all believers, Jews and Gentiles, if they place their faith in Jesus, they are children of Abraham, Romans 4, Galatians 3. Also, Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10, I think, also teaches that the better covenant, the new covenant, which is promised in Jeremiah chapter 31, is fulfilled in Jesus, bringing both Jews and Gentiles together. Okay, you might be, well, what about the promises to Abraham about the land? Isn't the land such a prominent place in dispensational uh, theology? Well, Hebrews 11, I think, interprets Abraham's land, Abraham's inheritance to be a heavenly inheritance, a heavenly city, which is fulfilled then. So the New Testament, my particular view, presents a Christ-centered reading of redemptive history 
not an Israel-centered approach to redemptive history. And so a Christ-centered approach reinterprets the place of Israel in light of the coming of Jesus Christ, who is the true and better Israel. If you were with us as we walked through the Gospel of John a couple of years ago, how many times did we see Jesus uh, being the better Israel, fulfilling all of those, uh, those promises and all of those uh, type of symbols in the Old Testament? All, right, all of these promises that we see made to Israel, made to Abraham, made to David, made in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus or will be fulfilled in Jesus and in and through the church. Romans 9 through 11, we see that the Gentiles are grafted into the people of God alongside uh, the Jews. And then the, the fourth, I think, challenge is that there is a concerning amount of dependence on a literal interpretation of Revelation 19 and 20. And a premillennial admits to relying on these chapters to frame almost their entire position. The challenge with that, and this doesn't make this view untrue, it just makes it challenging when these chapters are some of the most controversial chapters in all of the Bible. And so interpreting these chapters literally is plausible, but I don't think it's likely. And I know we're not studying Revelation right now, but Revelation is not written in a literal, linear, chronological manner. There is all kinds of figurative language, metaphors, and, and symbols. Almost every number, not every, but almost every number in Revelation represents something else. And so when you get to chapter 20 and you take the thousand-year reign, there is an enormous amount of debate whether or not that is literal or that is figurative. In addition, when you read Revelation, John, who's the author of Revelation, does this often. He tells an account or an experience or a story, and then the next passage or a few chapters later, he tells the exact same account just from a different vantage point, a different perspective. And so that's what I think is going on there in Revelation 20. I think it's recounting Revelation 19 verses 11 through 21 just from a different perspective, which is very typical of John to do throughout Revelation. And then finally, I think another challenge um, is that the rapture occurring seven years before Jesus's return, I think is unlikely. Now we saw kind of a breakdown last week by, uh, by Danny Aiken who, who kind of showed the difference between the rapture and uh, the second coming of Jesus. You can use actually some of those same passages and interpret it differently and come to a different conclusion. Welcome to eschatology. <laughs> but the, the Greek word there, the, the rapture there occurs in Thessalonians chapter four one time. And if you look at that, and again, you can interpret it differently, but it seems like it's most likely referring to the rapturing of God's people to the new heavens and the new earth, not rapturing God's people up to heaven and then making a quick U-turn back to the earth for the millennial reign. Even Matthew 24, 2 Peter 3, 2 Thessalonians chapters 1 and 2, I think teaches explicitly that the punishment of the wicked, the deliverance of the righteous, the gathering of God's people occur at the same time. Okay? Now, those are just a couple of challenges. There are more, um, but again, each of these views will have some challenges. Each of these views have responses to these challenges. So unless we want to be here till 2 o'clock, let's look at the second view today, which is the post-millennial view. 
Okay, this is, uh, this is not a popular view, okay? There, there are some crazy amount of exegetical gymnastics that, that take place in order to arrive at this view. And I apologize if, if that's uh, offensive to anybody who's a post-millennial this morning, but I'm not gonna spend as much time on this view this morning, but just by way of, uh, of review, a post-millennial view believes that Jesus will return after or post kind of this millennial period or, or, or this golden age period where there is incredible amount of blessing upon the earth, the, the world is largely Christianized, and then uh, Jesus will return. Okay? And it's not like they just made up this view, uh, but they believe this because uh, they honestly believe that Matthew 28, the Great Commission, will be successful. They interpret Matthew 13, the, these parables that Jesus provides. They, they, they apply that to extraordinary growth that the church will experience. What's interesting here is that they actually interpret Revelation, the majority of Revelation, as, a, as already occurring. And so the time of, of tribulation uh, to them occurred around 70 AD when the temple was uh, destroyed. Like the all-millennial view, they believe that after this golden age, uh, Jesus will return personally, bodily, and gloriously to defeat his enemies. He then will conduct the final judgment and then usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? There are a lot of um, challenges to this view. I'm just going to give you four here. But number one, um, I think that scripture, I think, clearly indicates that evil will intensify before the end, not this golden age. And so we see Matthew 24 1 Timothy 4, uh, 2 Timothy 3, seems like persecution and suffering will increase. And I think they have a hard time reconciling that with their idea of the golden age. Secondly, I think their interpretation of Revelation 19 um, is flawed. I don't think it refers uh, to the end of God's enemies leading to this period of prosperity. I think it refers to the second coming. A third, thirdly, I think that they, they honestly, they don't even know what to do with 2 Thessalonians uh, in, in comparison to 1 Thessalonians. They don't know how to harmonize those two because they believe that largely 2 Thessalonians has already happened. The man of lawlessness has already come. And so they re- I haven't found an answer um, that they would provide for that. And then fourth, I think they dismiss the imminent return of Christ. Uh, Jesus can't return at any moment because the world has to be largely Christianized first. So I think it goes against several passages that talk about the return of Christ happening at any moment, okay? So that's a post-millennial view. Let's uh, finish our time this morning looking at the all-millennial view, okay? And again, I'm just gonna do a little bit of summary before I get to some challenges and uh, and to strengths. Um, Like we talked about last week, the all-millennial title there, which means no millennium, I think is unfortunate. Uh, An all-millennial doesn't believe that there's no millennium. Uh, They believe that there is a millennium. It's just not out there in the future, and it's not a physical reign of Jesus. But they believe that the millennium is actually happening right now. That this, was, this all began when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. That the millennium will then end when Jesus returns. And so during the millennium period, uh, there is uh, simultaneously a gospel advancement and persecution and suffering that the church goes through. We see that uh, even today. And they believe that, that the gospel will go forth in power because Satan is bound The passage that was read this morning, Revelation 20, verse 3, it says that Satan is bound 
but he's not bound completely. He's bound according to verse three, which means that he's bound in the sense that he can't deceive the nations, rendering him incapable of, of preventing the spread of the gospel. Yet he's not utterly powerless uh, from persecuting the church. You can see this idea of Satan being bound in that way in Luke 10, verse 18, Matthew 12, verse 29. So just before the end, Satan will again be permitted uh, to deceive the nations and persecution will increase dramatically. Those who have died with Christ are currently reigning in the intermediate state with Jesus. And so Christians are awaiting the visible bodily second return of Christ, which will bring an end to all their suffering through a public rapture that begins the resurrection, Christ then judges the world, and finally ushers in the eternal state. That's a quick summary of the all-millennial view, all right? And so they interpret Revelation 20 um, as basically recounting Revelation 19 just from a different perspective, all right? And they, of course, uh, would, would interpret these promises made to Israel, made to David, made to Abraham in the Old Testament as being fulfilled by Jesus, okay? Now, what are some weaknesses, right? Every view has weaknesses. What about the all-millennial view? Well, I think weakness number one is the binding of Satan in Revelation chapter 20, verse three. Like I said, they interpret that as him being bound in the sense of not being able to deceive uh, the nations. But it's debatable because when you look around, does it seem like Satan is bound? It seems like evil is flourishing, right? Even 2 Corinthians 4, 4, where it says that Satan is blinding the minds of unbelievers. And, and so there's, there's a challenge there for them to be able to, uh, to, to explain that. I think secondly, uh, the mention of the first resurrection in Revelation chapter 20, verse five, uh, does this refer to the bodily resurrection or uh, an all mill w w would say, no, no, no that, that's referring to a spiritual regeneration. Uh, that refers to the new birth, that we have been resurrected from being dead in our trespasses. The problem with that is that the, the Greek word there for, revelation, uh, for, uh, for resurrection only refers to a bodily resurrection. And so they have uh, some explaining to do uh, with that particular interpretation. Thirdly, uh, when you look at the Old Testament, uh, and again, it, it depends on how you interpret Israel and the church, but the extent of Jesus's reign in Old Testament prophecy, premillennials interpret passages like Isaiah 11, Psalm 2, as Jesus ruling the nations completely. And so for the all-mill view, if Jesus is ruling right now through his church, why are the nations raging? Why aren't the nations submitting if Jesus is truly on the throne? And then I think a fourth challenge um, is just the heavy amount of, of a figurative interpretation of some of these key eschatological passages doesn't mean that they're not true or accurate. It just, it just, when you get into some of these views, it's interesting the way that, that they might interpret this view or uh, that view, okay? Now, what are some strengths, though, to uh, this view? There are a lot of strengths. Let me give you just two, just because of, of time this morning. I think one of their strongest strengths is the timeline they present of some of these events happening at the end times, I think matches most if not all of the passages that, that relate to these eschatological events. 
Okay, again, I think this is a big weakness to the pre-mill view that the all-mill presents a solution to when Jesus returns, the final blow of death occurs, the resurrection occurs, the final judgment happens, the new heavens happening concurrently. You can look at those passages to, uh, to identify that. And then secondly, and this gets me most excited, is that Christ is presently reigning right now over all things, that the kingdom of God is right now, okay? Jesus said that explicitly in Luke chapter 17, verse 21. Even these passages like Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 23, it says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Notice in this passage that it explains Jesus' rule and reign as not only in the age to come, but in this age right now. This is not in some millennial future reign on the earth physically, literally, but this speaks to Jesus' reign right now. And so it speaks to the idea of the millennium happening in this age, not in the age to come. Now, when you look at these views here, again, all these views have weaknesses, right? All of these views, I think, have some good strengths. But the millennial view, I think, has the least amount of weaknesses and an and explanation to some of their weaknesses. That's where I particularly fall today. Just wanted to be transparent with you. Now, as we close this morning, again, my challenge for you is to hold to a particular view that you find is most convincing biblically and to know that there's freedom. There's freedom within this particular doctrine to disagree with other believers. But what I want you to think through And really part of the purpose of this sermon series is to allow what we believe to be true in the future to impact how we are living right now in the present. If all this is, is an academic lesson where you're just utterly confused, we're missing the point of eschatology. This has to impact the way that you live right now today. And that's what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks as we look at some of these really important topics like the judgment of God. Like because we believe that is true, how should that impact the way that we live today? Or thinking about our bodies, we will have glorified bodies. We won't just be kind of this glob up there in heaven. So what does that mean for how we are to view our bodies today? Or thinking about the new heavens and the new earth, that will be our home forever and ever, that this isn't our home. How should that impact the way that we live our lives today? The fact that Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire, he will be defeated and destroyed. How should that impact the way that we live right now in the victory of Jesus, right? We're going to start connecting those dots over the next several weeks, looking at these particular topics. But I can't stress this enough that as as G.C. Burkhauer says, eschatology is not a projection into the distant future. It bursts forth into our present existence and structures life today in light of those last days, okay? And so the the way I want to encourage us 
today, as we think about the millennium, as we think about Jesus's kingdom, the application for us today is that in order for Jesus to be your king for all of eternity, he must be your king today. Philippians chapter two, powerful passage, maybe one of my favorite passages. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Last week, I, I tried to highlight the sovereign plan of God, that he sees the end from the beginning. He knows how all of these things will work out. Therefore, we can trust him. He's in control of all things. He can handle your life. Today, I want to encourage you with the matchless power of King Jesus. That eschatology reminds us that there is a day coming in which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to the reality that Jesus is King and Jesus is Lord. Eschatology reminds us of these powerful truths that because Jesus is ruling and reigning, Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire, evil will be no more, the presence of sin will be gone, and those who are followers of Jesus, you will be reigning with Jesus in his fully realized kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth. Like that is an unbelievable reality that is true according to the Bible, no matter your particular view about the millennium. That's something that we all can agree upon. But church, I want to encourage you today that we have a king right now. It's not some future king. Jesus is ruling and reigning on his throne today. We don't have a Jesus who is a half king. He's not ruling with his arms behind his back. He's not hovering over the throne as if he's like, okay, can I sit down now? Is it time? No, he is reigning right now on the throne with all power, all authority, and all dominion is his. Philippians 2 says he's exalted right now. His name is above every name right now. He is king and he is on the throne. The reason why that is important is because in studying eschatology, we love to highlight the future eternal kingdom of God. And we should, absolutely. But the reality is, if Jesus is not your king right now today, he will not be your king for all of eternity. He will only be your judge. And your sentencing will be condemnation if he's not your Lord and king today. If you have not bent your knee to Jesus, if you've not placed your faith upon Jesus because of what he's done for you on the cross, that he's paid for your sins, if you've not surrendered to him, and if you're not living as a citizen of King Jesus' kingdom today, you won't be reigning with him forever and ever. Because the reality is, is that you are either living in God's kingdom according to his priorities, according to his values, or if you look at the arenas of your life, the areas of your life, your finances, your parenting, your relationships, your time, if Jesus is not clearly reigning over all of those areas, then you are living 
for a different kingdom, and it's called the kingdom of self, where you are the king or you are the queen. Those are your two options. You're either living for King Jesus or you're living for yourself. And we have this constant temptation, I feel it every day, of trying to build our own kingdoms, trying to advance our own kingdoms, trying to protect our own kingdoms at all cost. That is a constant temptation. And the cultural values of our little kingdoms that we try to build, those cultural values are comfort and pleasure and control and and a complete devotion to protecting my own image. In fact, if you look at the sin in your life, if you look at the relational conflict in your life, if you look at almost every issue going on in your life, you can connect all of those things to the fact that you are trying to build, advance, and protect the wrong kingdom, that you're trying to advance the kingdom of me instead of the kingdom of Jesus Christ where he is reigning. And look, this advancing and building and protecting our own kingdoms, isn't it exhausting? Man, aren't you tired of that? That is so wearisome to to try to, to build my own kingdom when Jesus is on the throne. Why is that? If you're honest, why are you tired of trying to protect your own kingdom? Look, the reason why you are so weary of that is because you weren't made to be a king. You weren't made to be a queen. You were made to be a worshiper of the true king. That worship is the clearest expression of true allegiance to King Jesus. That when you look at at the dominant expression in all of these scenes in the Bible of the throne room of God, what are they doing? They are worshiping on their faces. That is the way that we express our allegiance to King Jesus. Uh, There is something about worship that reorients our hearts, that that unlocks this grip that we have on our own kingdoms, whereby we declare, Jesus, you are king and I am not. See, this is why I think eschatology is so important. No matter your view on the millennium, eschatology reminds us that there is something more powerful, there is something more beautiful that enables us to stop building our own kingdoms and worship the king. Eschatology reminds us and helps us to be enthralled with the majestic and the eternal and the forever reign of King Jesus. And this morning, I want to to challenge you with your idea of how you worship today in the present if the dominant expression in God's kingdom forever and ever is worship. How should that impact? And, not, and worship, I'm not just talking about singing and, and praying and all. I'm talking about the way that you live. Romans 12, every area of your life is an act of worship. It is the posture of your heart surrendering to whoever's on the throne in your heart. Is it Jesus or is it other things? And, and because forever and ever we'll be worshiping King Jesus, how should you live today? And I think the disconnect is that we fall into this lie 
that maybe I'm king, maybe I'm the queen, and it's not King Jesus. And eschatology helps us. It rightly puts Jesus on the throne of our hearts. I want you to close your eyes for a moment, and I want you to picture this scene of of God in Revelation 4. It says, at once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, and around the throne were 24 thrones, And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them, with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. What an awesome picture of God. Look, I don't know what you picture when you think about God, when you sing, when you pray, as you're talking about him. But when you get this Revelation 4 picture of God on his throne, it should impact the way that we live our lives right now today. Because what's going on in this scene? This is a worship service with these creatures, these terrifying creatures, where if you saw them down the streets, you would be terrified. You would have nightmares for the rest of your life. And yet, what are they doing? They are worshiping the king. Why? Why are they worshiping the king? Because they were utterly convinced that Jesus is the king and they are not. And that is the key for us to stop building our own kingdoms and to participate in King Jesus' kingdom is by seeing him as he really is, that he's ruling and reigning right now, and you are not. And so that's what we're gonna be doing. How should that impact the way that we live today? Let's pray together. God, we worship you. God, we praise you as we, Lord, think about you on your throne 
lightning and thunder and sea of glass and or all of these creatures bowing down and surrendering, declaring that you and you alone are worthy. God, forgive us, Lord, of so many moments in our lives where, where we fall into that lie thinking that we are the most important person in the world. We're not. You are. Everything revolves around you. There is no one like our God. So God, I pray, Lord, even in this moment, Lord, as we sing praises to you, help us to view you as we ought, as the ruling and reigning king over all things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.